earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello again, friends. On this day, we traditionally celebrate Thanksgiving. Maybe for some of you, it's a great day to celebrate. But maybe for some of you, it's not really that great. Maybe it brings to mind painful thoughts, discouragements, failures, maybe even tragedies. I don't know. But as believers, there is always one thing we can be thankful for, no matter how dim things may seem. Last time on our broadcast, I read the opening verse from Psalm 136. And I'd like to begin today's program with reading just the opening nine verses of this psalm. My wish and prayer for you, friends, is that these tremendous truths will sink and soak deep into your soul and lift you up and encourage you as we together ponder, even meditate on the enduring and caring love of our great God. It's very likely that this psalm was an antiphonal psalm, meaning that there was a group of people who would either sing or shout a repeated refrain. In this case, the phrase is, For his faithful love lasts forever. Psalm 136 has 26 verses, and every one has this repeating refrain. But I'm going to read just the first nine verses. You may recall from last time that the word love in this psalm is the Hebrew word chesed, a rich and all-encompassing word that carries a host of colorful and deep meanings. I'll remind us of just a few of them. Kindness, kind love, mercy, favor, and remember, attached to favor is the deep understanding of grace, compassion, generous love, faithful love in action, loyal love, covenant love, extending love when it's not deserved, graceful love, tenderness. So please don't tell me that grace is not plentiful in the Hebrew Scriptures or our Old Testament as we know them. As this term appears nearly 250 times and is sprinkled from Genesis to Zechariah. Perhaps you're in your car right now, hustling to get somewhere, or maybe even hustling back from somewhere. Or maybe you're just listening on a mobile device or perhaps even the podcast. 
whatever it might be, I'm inviting you to just let these divinely inspired words wash over you, pick you up, bless you, and encourage you as we continue our look at love of God from an Old Testament hymn writer's point of view. We're not sure if this is David, since it doesn't have a superscription attached to it, but let's listen in anyway. And as I read, please don't get lulled by the rhythmic repetition of our key phrase, for his faithful love lasts forever. Also remember that faithful love is just one of many ways to express chesed love as I just shared with you. In fact, you know what I'm going to do, friends? I'm going to pick nine different meanings for faithful love in each of these nine verses to give us all a glimpse of the fullness of God's love, the fullness of his chesed. So listen in with me as I read Psalm 136, verses 1 through 9. Let your heart overflow with praise to the eternal, for he is good, for his faithful love lasts forever. Praise the true God who reigns over all other gods, for his tender mercies last forever. Praise the Lord who reigns over all other lords, for his covenant love lasts forever. To him who alone does marvelous wonders for his committed love lasts forever. Who created the heavens with skill and artistry for his devoted love lasts forever. Who laid out dry land over the waters for his favor and grace last forever, who made the great heavenly lights for his steadfast love lasts forever, the sun to reign by day for his benevolence lasts forever, the moon and the stars to reign by night for his kind love lasts forever. Friends, I also mentioned that even God's disciplinary measures in our lives, in other words, his corrections in our lives, if you will, spring from his love, his chesed love. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. Listen to these words. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Isn't that interesting? that the writer to Hebrews quotes from an Old Testament book, the book of Proverbs. And then the writer of Hebrews closes out that little section by saying, endure hardship as 
discipline. God is treating you as his children. Did you hear that, friends? The writer of Hebrews refers to God's disciplining love as this word of encouragement. What are you, crazy? Perhaps the author of Hebrews wanted to make sure that we didn't make any accusation against God, point the finger at him, and say things about him when we're going through tough or challenging times. You know, things like, where are you, God? Don't you love me? Don't you care about me? You see, friends, Chesed loves assures us that God is with us all the time. Has said love assures us that God loves us all the time. Has said love assures us that God cares about us all the time. So this is the love I want us to recognize as we move into the New Testament. For with the exception of possibly one writer, Luke, the New Testament writers were Jewish. And how did these now Jewish believers in Jesus communicate the good news of Jesus being their Messiah and Savior to both their fellow Jews and to the Gentile world? You know, those heathens, those pagans among them in the Roman Empire. How might they decide to communicate the chesed love of God, especially to a Greek-speaking audience? Well, friends, I'll have to give credit here to one of my Bible college professors who constantly mentioned to us budding pastors that when we read the New Testament, we need to put on first-century sandals. What he meant by that was that we need to see with first-century eyes. We need to hear with first-century ears. Basically, we need to plant ourselves in the first-century world of the New Testament. So the Christ followers who became the writers of our New Testament had an interesting task before them. How would they communicate the chesed love of God to a Greek culture? Well, friends, how about we begin with some fun facts about the New Testament Greek language? Since I'm Greek, and one of my favorite movies is the original My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I'll briefly play the role of Tula's father, who often said, Give me a wart and I will show you the Greek origin of that word. Friends, there's a saying that goes, the Greeks had a word for it. And in this case, it's pretty amazing that in the first century Greco-Roman world, there were actually seven different Greek words for our single English word love. If you said to a fellow Greek or Roman back then, I love roasted goat, or I love feta cheese, or I love my neighbor, or I love my children, or I love my wife, 
or I love my husband. The person you said these to would completely understand without question which love you were talking about based on your word choice for the word love. And so this is why today's program is called What's Love Got to Do With It? Part 2. Because, friends, love has everything to do with it. And more importantly, the word for love has everything to do with it. Now, of the seven Greek words for love in the first century, four were pretty popular in common conversation. But I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament writers singled out three for very good reasons. Of the four, they eliminated the Greek word eros. Eros speaks of romantic love or physical love, which in the Roman Empire at the time, this word was totally defiled. It is where we get our English word erotic. In its place, the New Testament writers decided to say sexual immorality or fornication. The remaining three are words that perhaps you have heard in your church through a sermon or a teaching series or maybe a small group Bible study. These words are agape, phileo, and storge. Now, I'm going to elaborate on and illustrate these words in reverse order. So first, I'm going to take storge. It's a word that means family love. In other words, love of parents toward children and the love of children toward parents. It is sometimes referred to as familial love. When a first century dad or mom said, I love you, son, or I love you, daughter, the kids knew exactly what their dad and mom meant. Interestingly enough, this word is used only twice in the New Testament, and it's only used in its negative or opposite form, astorgoi. It is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 31, and 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. And just one quote here will be sufficient, so I'll read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers, phileo, of themselves, lovers, phileo, of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving. Sometimes this is translated as without love or it could be translated without natural affection, or even without kindred affection. This is our word, astorgoi. The list here goes on about the terrible things to come, but notice how knowing the Greek word for love helps us to properly interpret our English phrase without love. In the end times, friends, it's not just love in general that will deteriorate, but familial love, 
Parents will lose familial love for their children, and children will lose familial love for their parents. No wonder the family unit has completely broken down. Familial love is being trashed right and left in our modern culture. Second, phileo is a word that means friendship love or brotherly love. This idea is captured in the city named Philadelphia. You know, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or Philadelphia cream cheese. Delphia comes from the Greek word for city, and phila comes from the Greek word phileo that we've been talking about. So, as a result, we have this nickname for Philadelphia as the city of brotherly love. Just a few instances in the New Testament will suffice for understanding this wonderful word, phileo, or friendship love. Take Luke chapter 1 where Luke introduces his gospel by telling us he initially wrote it for the benefit of a man he addresses as most excellent Theophilus, so that he may know the certainty of the things he has been taught. Theophilus, what an interesting name, friends. I'll bet you don't have anybody in your family named Theophilus. In the spirit of Mr. Portacalis, in my big fat Greek wedding, I'll say, Theophilus comes from two Greek words, Theo and Phileo. Theo is the Greek word for God, and Phileo is the Greek word for the love between friends. So Theophilus means friend or lover of God. Cool, huh? Another instance appears in 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 22, Peter remarks, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love, phileo, for each other, love, agape, one another deeply from the heart. Notice here that Peter mentions two Greek words for love, phileo and agape. Agape will be the center of attention in just a minute or so. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, first speaks of the affectionate, brotherly, friendship love that should exist among and between members of the body of Christ as brothers and sisters in a spiritual family. And secondly, he pulls out the big gun, the piece de resistance, if you will, and tells us we should also love agape, one another deeply from the heart, or as some translations say, from a pure heart. So this verse begs us to ask the quintessential question, are we in our churches in our relationships with other believers, treating each other in a brotherly or sisterly fashion with sincere friendship love? I'll let you chew on that for a little while. Of course, Peter whips out the other quintessential question for us to think about, but we'll get to that once we, get, we have the discussion of agape. 
Friends, once again, I'll need to give credit to that same Bible college professor who taught us budding pastors. He repeatedly told us that the writers of the New Testament reached into their cultural toolbox and lifted out a word that was already in use in their world and elevated it and gave it a loftier meaning that built a bridge to the gospel. You see, friends, the gospel did not emerge in a vacuum. The scarlet thread of redemption began way back in Genesis and wove its way all through the Hebrew Scriptures, which is our Old Testament, particularly through messianic prophecies and promises to key individuals that God's word would eventually be proclaimed to the whole world. So, third and lastly, this incredible word agape was not even a Christian word. The classical origin of agape is actually somewhat unclear. Only the verb form appears in Greek literature from the time of the ancient Greek poet Homer. This is roughly the 800s B.C. The noun form appears outside the Bible in a title for the female goddess Isis, still a pagan context. On rare occasions, agape referred to a person favored by a god. In these instances, it carried the meaning of generosity demonstrated by one for the sake of another. Did you hear that, friends? Did you hear favor and generosity there? Hmm. Those two qualities are reflected in the Hebrew word chesed, aren't they? Am I allowed to say, oh my God, on Christian radio? Agape is the perfect word choice available to first century Christ followers and particularly those whom the Holy Spirit would lead to be writers of our New Testament. Agape is the perfect word and concept to pull out of the disciples' cultural toolbox and carry it to a loftier level than it had ever been in its mere usage in classical Greek literature. Friends, just listen to how this word and concept was converted into a gospel-centered understanding. For the disciples of Jesus and all future followers of Jesus, agape grew to be understood as, listen carefully now, a love that is given for its own sake, wanting nothing in return, and a love that seeks only and always the absolute best for the other person. I just got to say that again, friends. Agape, a formerly pagan word, was sanctified and sanctioned by the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit led them to convert this word into. A love that is given for its own sake, wanting nothing in return, and a love that seeks only and always the absolute best for the other person. 
This is what undeserved favor really is. Friends, meeting the expectations of this kind of love can really become overwhelming. But we must realize that we are not the source of God's love. We are channels. We are not manufacturers. We are distributors. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4.9. This is to encourage us. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to excel still more in that agape love. Jesus said it best in John 13.34 that the world would know that we are his disciples by the agape love that we have for one another. Friends, the nugget of truth that we need here to grasp onto, agape love describes the highest form of love that God has demonstrated toward us and is the same kind of love that we have by him and can demonstrate towards others. Friends, we're nearing the close of our program, and I just want to remind you that as a local pastor here in the Valley, although semi-retired, I'm active in a variety of ministries. I'd be honored to pray for you. Please listen to the email address that comes up at the end of the program, and it's also where you can learn to help support me in this ministry. Thanks for listening, and always remember that Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.